Hey everybody and welcome. You are listening to Locks LaRue's Locker Room. Join me every Friday with a different special guest. We'll be breaking the locks off toxic masculinity one locker at a time. This week I'm joined by the one and only Dominus von Vexo. Dominus is an international burlesque and drag performer, dance instructor and the founder of House of Allure. Today me and Dominus talk about ballroom and Latin, dating in the queer community and our debut act physical. Please note that the conversations between me and my guests are purely based on our own thoughts and experiences. Now with all that in mind, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hi everybody and welcome to the final episode of Lox LaRue's Locker Room. I'm so excited because today I have got here Dominus von Vexo. Hi Dominus. Hello, thank you for having me. So obviously I like to ask my guests while being on this show um, if they've had a camouflage when they were younger, like if they've had to be someone that they're not or if they felt like that. Um, a lot of my guests have so far have said that if they did, they might not have realised it at the time. So do you think that growing up you could truly, I know no one's going to say yes to this, but do you think you could truly be yourself um, or do you think that you had to sort of hide parts of yourself growing up? So really for me kind of growing up, I remember watching um, Step Up, the film, which I, I really, really enjoyed that. But that's what inspired me to start dancing. So a lot of people think that I started dancing when I was like really, really small. But I think I started when I was 16. I just went along to some boring classes and stuff. Um, so in a way, that was really the start of me kind of discovering more of the art world, more of the world in general. Um, but also at that time as well, um, I remember kind of growing up and stuff, being at school, obviously, hormones start to grow, you know, school chatter starts to happen, you know, everyone starts talking about sex and stuff like that. And I never really got involved with all that that much because I was exploring that side of my life um, rather privately in a way. So I'd um, kind of hook up with people and everything. But again, that was all just done in a complete blind spot really. So I hid that part of myself because maybe I didn't fully understand it, but also at the same time, it's like just the situation I was in, you wouldn't necessarily talk about your sex life and everything. It was kind of very um, immediate for me, I suppose, kind of discovering the LGBT world. I did it in a very kind of sex-based direction rather than kind of let's say going to gay bars and stuff like that getting to know your own tribe we just didn't have that so I didn't have to hide parts of myself I just chose to not talk about that side so because I didn't necessarily think it was appropriate to talk about if that makes sense younger me thought oh I'm never gonna be able to go out with someone because on the dating apps and stuff people are quite you know sometimes they can be specific like I only like this certain type and and like you said, because when you were younger, you were only exposed to like, you're not exposed to much. So you think, oh, to be gay, I've got to, you know, um, be really slim or muscly and I haven't got to be hairy and stuff because there's not much education. It can make you think, oh, I'm never going to be able to date anyone. So that's my limited experiences with dating. So I don't know about you if toxic masculinity came into that and, you know, like, what people are attracted to and what people like, you know, people can be quite... Um, exclusive can't they on dating apps and stuff oh yeah I think I think dating apps particularly from my experience because that's all I can talk from so things like Grindr, Tinder I think they're absolutely savage I really think that they are um obviously I've been 
you know, not on the dating game for a few years and stuff now. Um, but, you know, back then, again, it was different. So I presume things have evolved somewhat, but it was very much, um, there were, I think they were called grinder tribes of what do you fall into? Are you a bear? Are you a jock? This, that and the other. And if you never really fitted into anything, and I think it was a real opportunity for men to be like, you know, no femmes, no, um, no blacks, all of these kind of ideas, you know, Asians was another one that I used to see constantly. And it was this idea of, um, a really, really selective and quite abusive approach to hooking up with people. And I think that did a lot of damage for a lot of people's self-esteem. I think it still can. Um, because again, there was a lack of representation of body types and, you know, unless you're either white, twinky, very slim, or, you know, um, muscly and stuff, you're kind of lower in a food chain that almost, it almost seems like a food chain, I guess. And, you know, there's different things as well. I suppose if you look at um, positions in sex, for example, so there's obviously loads of different types of sex you can have. People like to engage in it and people um, change what they like and stuff. But if you look under the kind of typical verse, bottom and top, so with like uh, male sex, that, you know, if you're a top, you're more of a man. Whereas if you're a bottom, then you're less of a man. And you would find on um, profiles and things like that, it would be like top only. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's your preference in sex, because we all have our preferences. But I often found, particularly when I was on dating apps, there was this real sense of shame for people that wanted to receive, or there was this real kind of um, all the connotations linked to someone being a top. And again, I think a lot of toxic masculinity and what it is to be a man really came into that. And again, because there was such a lack of sex education, which there is such a lack of sex education in schools anyway, you know, they don't discuss, discuss vaginal pleasure. They don't really discuss STIs properly. It's kind of very much, this is a condom. This is how you put it on. Woo, let's go. And again, LGBT sex education just wasn't included. So you've got this kind of very niche thing where everyone can suddenly connect You've got toxic masculinity, a lack of education, complete naivety, all thrown into one. And yeah, I think it can be really hard for a lot of people, particularly because it was all sex driven. And for some people, they might have just wanted to learn to date or to connect with people. But it was, and I suppose to an extent, still is very, very sex orientated. Yeah, and um, I can sort of agree. Well this is sort of my thoughts when I was younger I used to think um obviously I was more feminine so I kind of thought that there, there wasn't that many categories for me to fit into for example because obviously being a bit hairier and of a bigger build I could have technically um I guess you could argue that I could be a, be seen as a top but um if I wanted to be a bottom, I had this stereotype that this is all I knew. I thought that if I want to be a bottom, I have to have short hair, be really slim um, and, you know, waxed and stuff. So I kind of felt that I didn't fit into any category. <laughs> um, I don't know about you then, like, um, did you have any problems with fitting into a category or did, when you were dating or did you feel like you had to, you know, 
be a, your body to be a certain way or look a certain way to get people to date you or do you think you just didn't think about it too much at that time oh absolutely I definitely felt pressures on how I should look in terms of my body type so you know I was quite big on fitness at one point and my confidence just did not exist because it is really lethal out there in the gay community uh, you know you if you don't look a certain way then as I said earlier it is literally like a food chain and I think there is I think sometimes there's this misconception about the LGBTQ plus community it's incredibly fabulous there's a lot of loving accepting people but there is still a lot of issues that need to be sorted out within the community again there's a lot of racism that exists there's a lot of transphobia that exists and I think you know there is a real lack of um, representation of what bodies can feel like in the LGBT community as well um, so I didn't really have a lot of confidence and I still believe it or not still doing burlesque that's still something that I do have to work on and I do certainly feel them pressures from time to time. So could you just talk us through a bit of um, ballroom and Latin um, and talk about how you think you've expressed yourself through that and do you think it can be very stereotypical with men and masculine and femininity because you've actually done both roles in that and I don't know if that's that common. Okay so ballroom and Latin has a really fascinating history um, for those of you that might not know what ballroom and Latin is, ballroom and Latin is partner dancing very similar to what you see on Strictly it, it's essentially that. Um, so yeah growing up as I said earlier I watched Step Up with Street Dance movie it was kind of very um, you know street dance is kind of it, the roots of street dance is kind of very aggressive hip-hop all of that a fascinating history to that as well but when I watched that I absolutely loved it but I always remember the um scene in that film where it was like a dance party and one of the characters was singing and it wasn't so much street dance it was kind of more of a sexy edge to it from both a more what we would associate as being a male and female kind of perspective and I really liked that and I saw a sense of freedom in that and I suppose kind of growing up as I said it was kind of very linear I really um, aspired to share that feeling of freedom maybe so the local dance school um, offered ballroom and Latin classes so I somehow watched street dance and I was like okay I'll go to a ballroom and Latin class I don't quite know how that merged but yeah, basically in Boreham Lane, you have a role. So if you do it with a partner, you have the role of a leader and the role of a follower. So essentially what the leader does is act as the driving force behind the dance and get, provide strength, direction, control for the follower to then feed off and kind of be able to do certain steps. So for example, you might push with your arm and the follower would resist that and that would allow their hip to move in a way that they wouldn't be able to generate on their own. There is a bit of a kind of physical science behind it and everything. It's not quite as basic as that. So yeah, but boring dancing, its roots come from very much that white culture and stuff um, and very, um, you know, tuxedo dresses, balls, all of those kinds of things. Whereas Latin, has a much more kind of flavoured history really um, 
from lots of different cultures and it was all kind of fused together and everything. But if you look at the kind of gender roles of it, so if we take the Paso Doble, for example, the Paso Doble, the role of the leader is the matador and the role of the follower is the cape. So that would essentially, the woman would be the cape, the male would be the matador. And it's a very dramatic dance. Um, it's passionate, it's fiery, it's strong, it's sexy, all of these kinds of things. But obviously it really stereotypically feeds into this idea of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. And um, for me, I do prefer being a leader because I like being in control of the dance. It's what I kind of grew up on. Um, in ballroom and Latin, but I always felt that the followers had far more interesting steps or a lot more expressive and sexy and all of that. And I was like, well, I want to try both. And I do remember being given the opportunity at the dance school um, where um, they were just starting to do same-sex couples which just wasn't unheard of. And I know that they've introduced that a little bit more on Dancing with the Stars and Strictly in recent years, although it is still quite traditional. Um, so yeah, for me, it wasn't necessarily about um, the kind of connotations with each role. I like the kind of control and strength that a leader needs, but I also liked the kind of flamboyancy and creativity that a follower could have. Um, so yeah, I have done both and I enjoy doing both and that's obviously really influenced into my burlesque styling and things like that. But again, for me, I didn't really question what each role, I looked at it without the gender associated with it. I kind of looked at the qualities that each role required and tuned into each of them and got different things out of it, rather than looking at it as I'm less of a man if I'm a follower or I'm more of a man if I'm a leader, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that does actually link nicely with burlesque, which we'll talk about in a minute. Don't you worry, everybody. But thank you for educating us a bit on Borium and Latin. Um, I just wanted to briefly say, obviously, because I went to some of your classes, and obviously this is how I've interpreted it interpreted it when I was um doing a leader I kind of felt more masculine being a leader and it was a good way for me to explore my masculinity and now I know in your class there was it um there was some people in it who weren't who did like the leader role who weren't men as well so I know that's me being a bit like gender stereotypical but for my experience I kind of felt like it was a good way to sort of like express my masculinity would you say that like that is like okay to say or do you think that is me looking at it a bit gendered no I, d I don't think it is I mean I mean really femininity and masculinity they are kind of again like gender it's just a construct what a lot of people mean by what it is to be a woman what it is to be a man are traits that are typically associated with that sex and really that needs to kind of be deconstructed which obviously you're doing with this podcast you're kind of contributing to that but again you know both of the roles in ballroom and latin they again they allow people to explore themselves so for example a leader you know if you take for example a tango you need to be strong there's aggression there's passion there's um um you know attack all of these kinds of things and then for the follower there is um you know there's also strength there's also passion and 
sexuality, whereas a waltz, a leader is more gentle and loving and poised and elegant. And the follower, it's a lot more romantic and stuff. And one thing I think that's worth um, saying as well, actually, about how traditional the world is, we have, as a teacher, you have a technique book. So ballroom and Latin dancing is a technical type of dance, similar to things like ballet, um, and other things like that where you have set figures. Now as a choreographer you can use the principles of ballroom and Latin and amalgamate something completely different and invent new steps but there are set patterns and figures that they use as a structure to understand the dance but in the books and a lot of teachers it was man and lady and part of what um, my dance school was really good at so um, they were like, well, that's a really dated belief. It should be leader and follower because there shouldn't be a, well, really it wasn't even gender. It is a sex assigned to it of man, woman, man, lady. And even the word lady in it, the, the, like there was that degree of class put to it. It wasn't female or woman, it was lady. So again, this was the, the history of the dances are to do with upper class and um, things like that. So yeah, it's really fascinating, but it's definitely um, a world that has progressed, but still needs to progress a lot more. But in terms of the typical or what we associate as masculine traits, there are very positive demonstrations of um, masculinity. I'm doing kind of inverted commas with my fingers for those of you, I know you can't see us. Um, in there like you know strength passion um being gentle all of these kind of things that's that's good actually because um in the first episode i talked with grizzly about the positive aspects of masculinity so i'm kind of glad that you have as well because it's not just one episode where we've talked about the positive um aspects of masculinity but this i just wanted to talk to you about those roots and your ballroom and latin roots because i want this to link on now to burlesque because obviously you can talk to us a bit more about this, how you've probably included some of your ballroom and Latin in some of your um, burlesque acts. One significant example that comes to mind to me is the Dirty Dancing Act that you do. Um, so obviously, yeah. as well, you combine in your burlesque acts like masculinity and femininity, don't you, I'd argue. Um, so in Dirty Dancing, could you describe that act to people and that really showcases off your dancing? Um, and do you think there's like masculine and feminine aspects in that and so yeah just take the floor with that oh that's one of my favorite acts and i'm really really missing uh performing it whilst i'm in lockdown um and it seems like it's going to be ages until i'm going to be able to do that sort of act again um but yeah so Dirty Dancing is probably one of my signature acts, definitely. And I absolutely love it because I love the film. I love the styling of it. Um, it's, it's probably, for me, it's my most freeing act where I can just dance. Um, so, yeah, again, there are qualities of ballroom and Latin influence steps in it. And so there's bits of jive, bits of salsa, you know, bits of cha-cha, just kind of use the movements essentially and because that is kind of i suppose my dance training that's how i'm comfortable translating uh, music with my body um but no i agree i think that there are um more masculine and feminine traits to it obviously um my drag is female presenting um so there is that edge to it as well um so 
But again, I don't kind of think of my performances from the perspective, is it more male, is it more female? And again, I had that attitude during Ballroom and Latin. I just liked the steps and the qualities that each of them bought. So for example, I won't think anything of liking Dirty Dancing. I might do some things that are typically, I don't know, like a little bit more male inclined so I do do this bit in a routine where I kind of have some audience participation and stuff and I do throw a bit of comical edge into it so for the first part of the routine it's quite I suppose quite feminine this that and the other but then I kind of throw a bit more boisterousness into it maybe but again I don't do that from a gendered kind of point I don't even consider it I just think of it this is what my body's doing this is what the music's interpreting all of that kind of stuff I do a, Dominus will know, I do a reindeer act for Christmas, which may only, may only come out once a year because it's Christmas. It's pretty weird doing it like now in summer, but who knows? It's 2020. Anything can happen. You could have a reindeer at any time of the year. Um, so um, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> we need the money. <laughs> yeah, fuckers, we need the money. Um, so yeah, with the reindeer, like Dominus said, I sometimes, sometimes I think I'm going to make this elements of masculinity and femininity or you know gender fuck or whatever or genderless other times I do it and then after I look back and I think oh actually I probably did that subconsciously so with the reindeer act it's quite feminine and cutesy and a onesie and then I have but then after it still goes quite feminine but I have like loads of bells on me so that's like a euphemism for like balls jingling about and I have like a jock strap and like quite junk you can see the junk in my trunk <laughs> so that's kind of like that I would say that's a good example of me mi mixing like masculine and feminine if you want to say in my wizard act that sort of um challenges I think you sort of said this to me briefly in some way or another it's sort of um what other people have said to me that's quite more masculine well they view it as like my Wizard of Oz, because for anyone who's seen the Wizard of Oz, the Wizard of Oz is a bit of a like phony, a bit arrogant, you know, this kind of like male character who, you know, thinks a lot of themselves. Um, and so I wanted to put this in a performance and, you know, take the piss out of someone who's like really confident and they're like, oh yeah, I'm the Wizard of Oz obviously thinks he's like really great and powerful, like those lines are in the performance. And it's like in it, I sort of strip off my clothes and sort of strip away the power. And it's just me in my boxes at the end. Um, and, you know, it, it, I guess it can comment on a lot of things really, um, obviously, but say using it as an example for this instance, um, I guess it, it kind of touches on the fact about, you know, the male ego and like, you know, stripping it away and, you know, um, I, I don't know. How do, what do you think of the Wizard Axe, Dominus, that you see? How would you interpret I, it? If, I, I love that act. I, I, I really, really enjoy it. I think it is... I, I love the Wizard of Oz and anything kind of linked to that, really. Um, but this is what I mean. I think drag and burlesque are very, very political forms of art really particularly burlesque has got a, such a rich history and a predominantly female history as well which needs to be so there's so many figures in burlesque you know you've got josephine baker sally rand um gypsy rose lee there's tempest storm there's incredible incredible women that just 
absolutely destroy the patriarchy and um, represent bodies, their wit, their intelligence, their strength. It's really admirable. And I think, you know, Burlesque is a wonderful catalyst for that and it attracts amazing, amazing artisan. You know, I think a lot of people, if they knew more about Burlesque history, they'd grow more understanding of the resistance of it. It's in, in the same way as how drag has as well, really. Um, you know, and I think when you engage in that art form, people will draw certain things from it. So if you're doing a classic burlesque number, for example, um, you know, if you, you know, take, you know, Coco Kink or Mama Mamba, you know, from House of the Lord, that, you know, they do amazing, amazing acts, but, you know, for the intent of the purpose, it might just be um, a classic number, but, but people seeing them kind of bodies on stage that aren't represented in the media, that is a statement within itself. Stripping is a statement within itself. And, you know, one, one thing that's really fascinating about one of my acts um, is my Scarecrow Act. And this was a completely different type of act for me. It's horror. I start off dressed as a scarecrow and it's quite <laughs> it's terrifying, really. Um, and I strip off and it's me underneath and there's a few surprises in it. But one thing that always fascinates me is one of the most, I kind of, say popular feedback to get about that act is particularly if it's more to um not in a queer space and um, people say oh we were really trying to figure out whether you're a man or a woman in that and i get that constantly like that is what i always get because people don't know and it's like well and i always say well it doesn't really matter does it like do you know what i mean but there is this kind of need to decipher and i suppose because there are you know, these typical masculine and feminine qualities and because you can't see my face and everything under the scarecrow outfit, it's kind of interesting that people, rather than just watching it and seeing the qualities form together of the dance, they feel the need to kind of question and put it into these boxes. And in a way, what is meant to just be like a kind of horror entertainment kind of act has actually become this kind of political tool that's challenging what people think and how they think. Um, so I just think that the art form itself is such a great tool for challenging beliefs. And that's why it, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful art form. Well, yeah, well, two points from that then. <laughs> um, <laughs> with, um, with, with um your scarecrow this is how i interpret it so obviously you this is obviously my interpretation you could correct me or you could whatever but i think that when i've seen it like you start off obviously in like the scarecrow outfit i think that appears quite like masculine you know like quite boisterous and terrifying you know it could be one idea of masculinity and then after you obviously strip off and then you're like in these beautiful colors that's sort of more expressive colorful and you could argue more feminine um so that's one interpretation from it the second interpretation i'd get from it is that um obviously i viewed that as like a mental health piece as well like sort of 
you know, you sort of feel enclosed in this scarecrow outfit. Like sometimes when you're struggling with mental health, you can struggle, like you feel claustrophobic and then you break free out of that outfit, all those expressive bright colours. So what do you think about those two interpretations that I've just said, Thomas? <laughs> I think it's interesting. It's fascinating to hear. I mean, as artists, we always put things on stage. And for me, I'm not really that interested on whether people enjoy it or not what I want is people to react from it so obviously if I get roaring applause and everyone loves it that's an amazing feeling but you know not all pieces of burlesque for example is there you know to be applauded and you know or laughed at you know you might want some people to get upset or angry or um you know frustrated you want the audience to feel something so the worst thing you can ever have as a performer, which I'm very lucky I've never had, is for it to just fall on silence and there'd be absolutely no reaction. As long as, even if people hate what I do, I'm not, I've provoked something. So for me, that's a job done. So yeah, it's really interesting to hear that you got that from the Scarecrow. As I said, for me, I just thought it was a really interesting act. I liked the idea of it being this scary kind of thing and then stripping it away and you know, being all sexy underneath and stuff, as I said, with a few surprises along the line. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I find that really interesting. Well, yeah, I like all of how your acts are, like, they're expressive and they can be viewed as, you know, exploring masculine and feminine features. Um, so, everybody, um, Dom, we're coming to the end, but before and I wanted to talk to Dominus about our double act physical. Me and Dominus first did this physical act when we were um, with YC at Second Self. Um, so we were quite new to our burlesque journeys and um, we did the society, but this was like outside of that. So do you want to tell us a bit about the act, Dominus? And then I wanted to make a few points about it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, um, I love that act with you. It's one of my favourite acts. So... As he says, essentially what it is, is that we dress up um, in kind of sports gear, essentially, and we both perform to the song Physical by Olivia Newton-John. And it gets ever so more heated, we get more sexual with each other, and obviously we strip off at the end. Um, but it's kind of very kind of, we came up with the idea because we wanted to do something fun, we wanted to do something together. It is kind of very more boylesque based, and even though I have done it in drag before, I can do it out of drag as well. It's kind of, again, it doesn't really matter what way I'm presenting. Um, but we kind of, it was very kind of, celebratory of like gay culture really and we you know ch challenge lots of things to do with masculinity in it but in a fun way like we poke fun at it um you know we obviously start off and you know there's obviously like sports fetish in it um you know the, there's parts where we're literally leaping on each other and humping <laughs> each other and stuff um yeah, and it's like just this comedy kind of piece where it's like very much that men can like each other, you know, gay men have a space and sex can be fun. And yeah, it just kind of challenges a lot of things, but it's just a really positive, fun act, I think. And it's definitely a popular one um, with our audiences, isn't it? Yeah, and can you believe both of our mothers have seen it, that act, and in the front row? <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think whether my nan's seen that one or not. She might not have seen that one. It's definitely fun. And, you know, we 
obviously, you know, we've both got very different body types. We're just embracing that. And it is very much like a fuck you to what it is to be a man in a sense of, you know, what the expectations are. We're like, here are our bodies. We've both got different bodies. I'm dressed up in black. You're dressed up in pink, which is obviously associated with being more girly, you know, and it is very in your face. It's funny. You know, we poke fun at it, but it, it really adds a visibility to raising awareness for, you know, gay sex and things like that and, you know, attraction and having fun with it and stuff. And, you know, really kind of, it, it puts the taboo on stage of it, I think, doesn't it? I think that's essentially what it does. It's like, here we are, this is a taboo. We're going to actually address it. And I think that's what we do with it, really. Yeah, and in the way you'll be interested to know, I don't know if I've already told you this, but I enjoyed doing it. It was quite therapeutic. Obviously, not to, just talking about the humping. <laughs> but um, in terms of like, right, let's take it back to school. So I don't know if you found this, but a lot of the boys would be like humping each other, messing around in the changing room. You know, like, we're not gay, but let's hump each other and be silly and stuff like homoerotic. You know, it's only okay when it's homoerotic hashtag um bro job or hashtag no homo do you know that bullshit right so i had that at school and then it got to the stage where people started humping me so for starters it wasn't consensual and it was done as a form of humiliation to humiliate me for being gay so this is why it links in with the physical act i've only just thought of this now it's kind of good to do what we do on stage because we're both taking the control like we're taking um the make a bit out of you know how boys can be like homo erotic with each other and be like it's not gay but you know I think it's kind of a bit of that as well so it's kind of helps me to sort of you know overcome that bullying does that kind of make sense yeah it does I mean some of that sounds absolutely horrific I never experienced that really I mean obviously the title of this podcast I think is brilliant you know Locks Locker Room it does kind of address that idea of what it's like to be in a changing room for guys because all kinds of stuff goes on in there and it did at school and there's a lot of attitudes and it is a real it's it's it is a real display between you know men of masculine there's almost a hierarchy within changing rooms sometimes and I think particularly at school that's really highlighted of you know, everyone's getting changed, so everyone's, you know, looking at the bodies and those that don't have the typical male physique or there's fat shaming and things like that. And yeah, it really is a place where those um, darker um, qualities linked to masculinity really do get out of hand. That That's really good. And I, well, that what you've just said is really good. And I feel like it's, it was kind of, it's quite positive. It's sex positive, isn't it? It's kind of like positive in a queer way as well. Like saying we can hump each other and comical on stage and it can be gay. You know, that act could have been done, couldn't it? By two straight men, like taking the piss out of being gay, but we've actually done it in a way where it can be comical, but it's actually celebrating being queer, celebrating being sex positive, body positivity too. Like you said, how we've both got different, and body types and stuff like that so I'm really glad we got to do that together you yeah definitely and one thing I would like to kind of add to that is really is that what we do with it is that we're owning our narrative with it that's essentially what we're doing and that is predominantly a lot of what Blesk is about but you know just within the rounds of sex like I mean 
toxic masculinity, it really is a root in so many um, problems. I think it contributes massively to homophobia. I think it contributes massively to misogyny and transphobia and all of these kinds of things. And particularly within sex, because of the lack of education there is around it, I think what is good about physical is, yes, we're not necessarily educating people, but we are starting a discussion about it and again throwing the taboo out of there because not a lot of people do talk about there is such a lack of education about it and I think toxic masculinity really is a damaging part of sex because sex can be fun people should be educated on it people should communicate with it um, there's so many things to do with it like you know discussions of consent vaginal pleasure you know gay sex um asexuality um all of these kinds of things so many people have a lack of awareness about again you know obviously we are you know in sportswear with it and jock straps and stuff and that's a big part of kink within the lgbtq plus community and stuff and you know people should talk about it sex shouldn't be a taboo you know most people do it most people enjoy it and I think toxic masculinity can really, really um, create some really damaging situations for people. So for example, you know, the idea if you take, you know, what it is to be a man and the way men can sometimes talk about um, women and the idea as well that, you know, women can't own their sexuality as well. And the misogyny behind that is absolutely disgusting because, you know, it's like the more the more people you sleep with, the more of a man you are. Whereas for me, I'm like, you know, with being bisexual, if I was, you know, in you know, engaging with a female in that sense, you know, I'd want to make sure that, you know, I'm pleasing them and doing a good job, communicating, doing all the kinds of things, having fun with it. You know, accidents happen in sex as well. You know, sex can be messy and all of this kind of stuff. And for me, surely that is being more of, again, inverted commas, more of a man by engaging and communicating with the person that you're sharing that space with. And rather than asserting your entitlement and dominance over that kind of person. And again, I think toxic masculinity can lead to a lot of abuse in that kind of situations. I think it can lead to a lot of ignorance as well, which is damaging. And again, the stronger a taboo is on something, the more I suppose it allows for that kind of behaviour to continue and grow and evolve and get ever so more toxic and that really does need to be challenged I think. Yeah thank you for that and I hope we've, we've hopefully during this podcast we've challenged toxic masculinity by even just like you said with physical that opened up a discussion didn't it um, so this podcast hopefully opens up a discussion by hearing other people's experiences um, so thank you Dominus for coming on today and finishing us off with a great episode um, there was loads I wanted to ask you, um, you know, about mental health and, you know, about sexuality and all your other performances. But I think we've covered quite a lot. So we'll give everyone enough to digest all of that. But before we go, I was wondering if you wanted to have any takeaways or anything you want to leave with people, like resources that you found useful that can link with toxic masculinity, performing, creativity, mental health, anything to do with that or sexuality or 
gender yeah, expression. I, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've not really covered it and um, maybe I can come back on at some point and we can talk about it. But, you know, I am bipolar. I, you know, I have, um, I suppose the title for it is that, you know, I am a suicide survivor and stuff like that. And men's mental health really isn't taken seriously. Mental health as a whole isn't taken seriously enough and understood enough. And um, obviously one thing I'd like to say is that men's mental health is, you know, valid. Anyone's mental health is valid. And it's really important as well in a world full of social media, we've got instant access to so many things. So enrich your life more follow people on Instagram to do with mental health, sexual health, you know, follow inspirational, you know, um, LGBT figures, you know, inspirational men and women and um, trans people, you know, lots of different cultures, just enrich your life and you will find that it inspires you in so many ways and opens your mind up to lots of different things. Read more, diversify what you watch on Netflix and all of those kinds of things. And you'll realise that there's a lot of beauty in the world, a lot of um, information and qualities that people offer. And, you know, when you learn all about that, if, as so to say, to coin the phrase, you'll become a much better man than you were before. I would like to thank Dominus for coming on to this podcast. If you want to catch more of Dominus, then check them out on Instagram at Dominus underscore Von underscore Vexo. Thanks for listening to Lox LaRue's Locker Room. We'll see you very soon. And make sure to follow me on Instagram at Lox LaRue. Bye. We should have just had like a whole series talking about our act, shouldn't we? Talking about ego and the Wizard of Oz. Talk about male ego. We're just sat here talking about all our acts. Yeah.